want to preach this morning on Bethlehem, the birthplace of Jesus. Um, maybe by way of intro, as we think about Christmas, I want to talk about the who, the what, the when, and the where of Christmas this morning with an emphasis on the where it all happened. But first of all, the who. When we think about Christmas, the who of Christmas is Jesus. He's the one that was born in Bethlehem, the Savior of the world, the Messiah that had been prophesied to come. He's the one who conquered Satan, rose from the dead, defeating death, hell, and the grave. The one who healed the sick, who gave sight to the blind, who raised the dead. This one is the one that we celebrate at Christmas. It was His coming into the world. The perfect, spotless Lamb of God who died for the sins of the world. What happened? This Savior came. He came to rescue a dying world from our sins. God's Son made the decision to take on flesh and live amongst us and die the perfect, spotless sacrifice. You know, it is difficult for us to kind of wrap our minds around the truth that Jesus was the Son of God and yet He was fully man. It's especially difficult for those of us that did not live with Jesus, did not grow up with Jesus, did not physically have the opportunity to sit with Him and speak with Him. It's those of us that know Jesus simply through reading the Scriptures, we have a really hard time comprehending how He was man. But you know when you study the Scriptures, you find out that those who actually grew up with Him, they had a hard time understanding how He was God. They had the opposite problem. And in fact, when He began His ministry at about the age of 30, and He's healing the sick, and He's teaching and preaching with a degree of authority they had never heard before, and he's doing these miracles, they were the ones that said, who is this? Is this not the carpenter's son? In other words, is this not who we just, we've known for the last 30 years? Is this not the boy we grew up playing ball with? They had a very difficult time seeing him in his divinity. But Jesus was exactly that 100% divine and 100% man simultaneously. When was Jesus born? We really don't know exactly, to tell you the truth. It was not December 25th. But here's what we do know. He was born. And His birth changed the world, and we celebrate it this week. This morning, I really want to dig into the where. Where was Jesus born? Bethlehem. We see it here in Micah chapter 5. You know, it's interesting to me that it was prophesied where He would be born before He was born. It is... Mind-blowing, fascinating, moving, convicting. When you really look at the number of times that God declared something in this divine book 
before it came to pass, and then it comes to pass exactly like God said it was going to come to pass. It's incredible. I sincerely do not understand how anybody could look at these facts and not see this book as a divine book. It doesn't make sense to me. Someone that says, uh, you know, it's not divine and there's nothing special about it has either never read the book or they're just, you know, quoting something they saw on Google. But if you read the book, we just did Micah chapter 5. It's a historical fact that Micah chapter 5 was written before Jesus was born. And it's a historical fact Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It's incredible. I'm not here to talk this morning about prophecy, but I want to just simply point that out. It's amazing. This is the divine word of God we're dealing with this morning, brothers and sisters. So it was told that he would be born in Bethlehem. Bethlehem was a very small village at the time of Micah. When this was prophesied, Bethlehem was like less than a couple hundred people. It's kind of like Udall. Like nobody cares about it. <laughs> look, look, look what it says in verse 2. It says, Bethlehem, you who are too little to be among the clans of Judah. Here's what that means. When Joshua was dividing the land and the cities to the tribes, he would say, you know, this portion of land and this city and this city and this city goes to this tribe. And this portion of land and this city and this city and this city goes to this tribe. When you go look at how he divided the land, Bethlehem is in the region, but it's not even mentioned. That's what it's telling us in uh, Micah chapter 5 verse 2 here, that you are too little to be named among the, the tribes of Judah it's just saying that when it did come time to name you, you were so insignificant that Joshua just left you off. Like, we're not even going to talk about who gets Udall. Nobody cares. It's just not going to be on the list of who owns it. This is how Bethlehem was looked at. It was this very small place. The word Bethlehem, it means house of bread. Ephratath means fruitful and that um, following Bethlehem Ephratath, that, that Ephratath was kind of an area that, um, I don't know, maybe you think of it like a county. And we see that David and Jesus were both born in that region. Why, that's what I want to ask the question this morning, why would God choose of all the places on the earth to have his son born in a place like that? Why little Bethlehem? What I want us to see this morning is ultimately that the things that interest us don't tend to interest God. And the things that we seem to think of as insignificant, God seems to look at in a special way. 
God tends to use and work through places and people that we would typically not choose. We're going to come back to Bethlehem, but what I want us to do is look at the New Testament principle of this. The Bible teaches us that God's the same yesterday, today, and forever. He does not change. And I want you to see how even in the era of like New Testament grace, God is still choosing to work and use through things and people that we typically would not choose. Look what Paul said about it in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 26 through 29. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. I'm going to read the next few verses in a moment. But I want to look at that one verse there. Consider your calling, brothers. Those of you that are saved, look around. Those of you that have answered the call of God, and you are now children of God, true Christians, saved. He says, consider something. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. I want you to understand, like literally, what is being said here. Most of you are not very intelligent. Like you're compared to what people think of as intelligent, not many of you are intelligent. That is literally, truthfully, what's being said here. It's kind of funny, but it's not a joke. That is actually what the great Apostle Paul is saying. Look around in the church, you will find not very many of you are intelligent people compared to worldly standards. Then he says, not many of you are powerful. That word powerful there has an implication of influence. When we think of powerful people or maybe powerful political um, uh, members, this, you know, when you have power, you have the ability to force things to happen like you want them to. You have influence. He said, not many of you had that. You're not important, influential people. And not many of you are of noble birth. The New Testament says this is who makes up the church. And what does he say about it in verse 27? But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even the things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. The Bible says God doesn't choose the things that we think are great. He chooses the things we think are foolish. God doesn't choose the people that we think are great. He chooses the people that we think are foolish. God doesn't choose the people who have great influence. He chooses the people that tend to have little. This is an important lesson for us this morning, brothers and sisters. 
Notice it says not many of you. It doesn't say none. It's not impossible to be a Christian and be intelligent. It's not impossible to be a Christian and have influence or power. It's not impossible to be a Christian and have been born into a noble family. It's just highly unlikely. I have a sermon series coming up in January, more than likely, titled, There Are No Rich Men in Heaven. That's what Jesus said. He said it's impossible, impossible for the rich man to go to heaven. That's all I'm going to leave you with that one. You're going to have to come back and hear the sermon series (laughs) to see where that one goes. But I point to that. And I look at this scripture here, which tells us not many noble, not many powerful, not many edu- you know, people who think they're real educated are saved. Why? It's not that those people can't be saved, but at the end of the day, they tend to think that what they have is great. They're not willing to lay down their true pride and lay down their thinking of themselves as something high and mighty. I think about the rich young ruler that came to Jesus and said, hey, what do I got to do to be saved? Jesus gave him a real easy instruction. Just sell all you have. And he went away sorrowful because he wasn't willing to lay down what was most important to him. That's why you most noble people, they take pride in their nobility. They don't want to see themselves like the rest of the peasants. As long as they can maintain their status in the kingdom of God and keep their status of being up here above everybody else, they're all in. God says, my kingdom does not work that way. Consider our wisdom to God's. I don't care who you are this morning, whoever the smartest person is in this room, doesn't matter who you are. Your wisdom compared to God, it's just like, there's no way to compare it. I could compare like your wisdom to the wisdom of an ant, but even that is so far vast from where you are to God. And you'll find the wise man thinks that he's wise. You know what we learn is that to truly come to God, you've got to be willing to lay down your ignorance and your arrogance and your pride And stop thinking that you're something special that God needs. God does not need you. You need God. So back to Bethlehem, right? We see in the New Testament this truth that God chooses the foolish things to confound the wise. So back to Bethlehem. Why Bethlehem? Number one this morning, God takes notice of the little things. God takes notice of the little things. The things that we seem to be, think are insignificant or don't matter, they tend to matter to God the most. I don't want to spend a tremendous amount of time here, but I want to look at three. Three times where we see God using something small. First of all, I think about David. Most of you are probably familiar with the story of David and Goliath. You know, if you will go read 1 Samuel chapter 16, 17, and 18, and look at the start of David's life, you'll see that there's a whole lot 
of just him being small. It's not just David and Goliath. Think about, you, you remember when Samuel comes to Jesse, that would be David's father. Samuel comes to Jesse's house and says, you have a son among you who's supposed to be king of Israel. Call your sons in and I will, the Lord will show me which one it is. You remember the story? Jesse brings all of his sons but one. Now, if a prophet showed up to my house like Samuel, the prophet of Israel, and tells me that God has showed him that one of my sons is supposed to be king, I'm going to get all my sons in there. But not Jesse. He was so convinced there's no way that it was the runt that he can just stay there tending the sheep. There's no possible way that David's the one that's supposed to be the king. And so Jesse brings in his other boys, and you know the story. Samuel says, this isn't it. He's not it. He's not it. He's not it. Is this all of your sons? And what is the answer? Well, no, I, I, mean, I have another little guy. He's the youngest and smallest of them all, and he's just tending the sheep. The implication is this. There's just no way it could be him. There's no possible way it could be David. And you know the story. David comes in, and David's the man. And then you continue to read. David's brothers are off to war, or supposedly war. Really, they're afraid to war. And David brings his brothers some lunch. Here's Goliath mocking Israel, and David says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine that's defying the armies of the living God? And everybody mocks him. Like, who are you? What are you going to do? He's five times your size. David eventually gets in front of Saul. Saul says the same thing. David, you're too little. David says, I am going to kill him. Saul says, all right, well, kick him out. Let's go see what happens. But Saul actually takes his armor and puts it on David, right? And the Bible tells us that ultimately it was just too big for David. He couldn't make it work. He couldn't move around properly. And so then what does he do instead? He takes a slingshot. I'm talking a slingshot in Five smooth stones. These are small stones. What am I trying to tell you this morning? God does not work in the ways that we think he would. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. God takes an interest in the little things. You remember in Judges chapter 7, the story of Gideon. He's on his way to war. There are 120,000 Midianites that are at war against Gideon and his army. Gideon's got 30,000, 32,000 people. The ratio is basically four to one. Gideon and his group are outnumbered. And God says, you go tell Gideon, or Gideon, you go tell your people, anybody that's scared, they can go home. 22,000 of the 32,000 went home. About one out of three, excuse me, two out of three. That's a great spiritual principle, by the way. You don't want to go to war with people that are terrified of war. 
It'd be better to go with 10,000 that had the hearts to fight than to have two out of every three alongside you terrified. But God didn't stop there. Even though those 10,000 weren't afraid and they were ready to go to the war, God told Gideon, he said, what I want you to do now is take a look at the way these boys drink when they come back. And if they drink this way, I want you to send them home. If they drink like this, I want you to keep them here. And before it was all said and done, there was 300 men getting ready to fight 120,000. And you know the story. They didn't actually have to fight. It wasn't as if all, you know, each man went out and slayed 20,000 apiece. God gave them something else to do entirely. And in their act of obedience and worship to God, God himself confounds the enemy and destroys the enemy. With an army of 300 people, I'm telling you God takes interest in the little things. You remember the story of Jesus when the multitudes were following him in John chapter 6? And at the end of the day, they were tired and hungry and thirsty, and Jesus said to, you know, feed them. And the disciples said, how are we going to feed them? And one of the disciples comes to Jesus and says, here's a little young man that has a few loaves of bread and some fish, but there's like lots of people here. And you know what Jesus did with it? He took what was little, he put his hands on it, he gave thanks to God for it, and then he started using it. So much more could be said. I think of the woman with the, uh, that, that just had enough cake to make one last cake and then die. I think of the woman that um, was in debt and they were going to take her sons and she just had a little cruise of oil and God told her through the prophet to go get, you know, go get a bunch of as many vessels as you can and just keep pouring that cruise out and it never ran dry. She just kept filling it up, filling it up, filling it up and was able to sell it all and pay off her debts. Here's the point this morning. God chooses to work through the little things. That's why Jesus was born in Bethlehem. It was little. God takes a very special interest in the little things. Now this morning as I move towards the application, I pray that the Holy Spirit will open our hearts to what I'm about to say. Guys, what we have been conditioned to see is important. It's not very biblical. When, I, when we look at God taking an interest in the little things, when we look at God choosing for his son to be born in Bethlehem, how, much, how different is it from Black Friday? Look at how different it is from what I cautiously call American Christianity, where we worship celebrity pastors. We, we, we hunger for millions of followers. Even sometimes subconsciously, in our own mind, in our own heart, we elevate people to platforms that have huge platforms. We define success by who has the most influence or followers or money or books, this or that. Now look, those things in and of themselves are not wrong. I'm not, personally, I'm not an anti-megachurch guy. 
Jerusalem, the way I read it, had thousands of members in a matter of days and would classify as a megachurch. What I am against is when it becomes glorified to the point that we're actually elevating each other and elevating pastors and elevating song leaders and elevating ourselves because we think that we're great because we have a lot of followers. All of a sudden, we've taken that bait and forgot that the will of God is that we remain humble and in our own mind and in our own heart that we remain small. I fear that we've lost sight of it. And when I look at the American church and I look at the average American Christian, I don't even know how to put all this into words. The truth is that as a pastor, sometimes my heart aches having been called to pastor people in this era of time. Sometimes it feels like a Hopeless battle. Everybody wants power, and everybody wants influence, and everybody wants followers, and everybody wants likes, and everybody wants to be liked, and we tend to glorify the very thing that as we see in this book, God does not glorify. And it's like we've Christianized it somehow, some way. For the very things that God is not real concerned about, we now claim that if you really love God, God's going to give these things to you. He's going to make your life easy. You're going to be rich. Everything's going to be better. And you're going to have more power. You're going to have more influence. And it's like, how did we get here? This isn't true. The Bible says that we must enter heaven, enter the kingdom of God through much tribulation. It's not always easy. There is no promise that God's going to make you great and that God's going to make you famous and that the whole world is going to love you. In fact, the promise is the other way around, that if they hated Jesus, they'll hate us too if we are truly followers of Him. But I'm telling you, in this modernized American Christianity, it's like somehow we've spun that. And we tend to glorify and hunger and thirst for influence. We want to be up on a pedestal. We want, honestly, be honest this morning with yourself. You've got to raise your hand. Just be honest. How often do you go back and check to see how many likes you have after you post something? Are you hearing me this morning? How often does your mind and your heart really pay attention to how much are people paying attention to me? You know, if that's you, you've bought into what I'm talking about this morning, this idea that somehow you need more power and influence and likes and this and that. And when I tell you that as a pastor, my heart aches, here's why. Because I understand this principle. I understand that God comes to Bethlehem. That's where God comes. And I haven't even got there yet, but Bethlehem wasn't, was, was still too little. He ends up being born in a manger. We'll get there real soon. And the real problem with, with us, brothers and sisters, is we're not willing to be Bethlehem. We want to be pomp and prestige and power and influence. And God doesn't come there. 
and I see it in the church, and it's like we, we look around and we don't know what's wrong. Like, we, 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 we mistake the moving of the Holy Spirit, if we have any of it at all, for like great emotional experience, but for the most part, even churches that have great emotional experiences, generally speaking in this country, the church is looking around and we recognize there's no moving of the Holy Spirit. There's no new birth. Nobody's really being saved. Nobody's really changing. Nobody's lives are really being transformed. We're all just going through motions and we don't know why. There's no power. There's no new life. There's nothing special happening. I see it happen in the life of individuals. What's true of the church at large is only true because it happens in the life of individuals. We're too concerned about us and me and being great and being liked and we want power and we want influence and we want to be famous and we want this and we want that and we wonder, God, why is there no moving of you in my life? May we learn the lesson of Bethlehem this morning. It's because God chooses to be born in lowly places. He chooses to come to the humble. He chooses to work and move and be born in the places that everybody else sees as insignificant. Why not Rome? Of all the places that God would choose for His Son to be born, why not Rome? The, the chief political power of the world at that time. Why not Athens? The place of philosophical thought and debate, or Jerusalem. I mean, the place of, of where all the, the really extreme religious capital of the world. Why wasn't Jesus born there? Bethlehem was void of prestige and pomp. It was plain and simple. It's fascinating to think the angels came there also. When the angels came to earth, it was to the hillside of Bethlehem to talk to some shepherds. Man, I don't know if you can see it like I see it this morning, but I'm telling you that God is interested in the little things, the things that are not interesting to us, the things that the rest of the world sees as totally unimportant. God's interested in those things. Right. Last thing I'm going to say about this, and then I'm going to move. You look at how Jesus chose his disciples. Jesus' ministry, while he was born in Bethlehem, raised in Nazareth, most of Jesus' ministry took place in close proximity to Jerusalem. Now, Jerusalem was the, the supreme religious city of the world. You had people there who their entire life had been studying the Scriptures. You had certain men there who from the time they were little had been fully devoted to growing up and becoming teachers and rabbis and their whole life they'd just been immersed in religion. You know, when Jesus went to choose his disciples, he did not choose any of them from that area. None wise, none noble. 
He chose fishermen. We look at Peter, who's a, a good kind of template of the rest of the disciples. What can be said of Peter is very true of most of the other ones. Peter was just kind of a, a rough and tough fisher guy that was not that intelligent. You look at the things that Peter said, and have you ever had that friend that you just kind of hope that they don't say things in front of people that are new until they get to know them a little bit, and then it's like, it's okay, that's, that's my friend. But the first couple times, you're like, oh, please don't talk. That's how Peter was. And when you study the life of Peter, he really was that way. He was constantly saying stuff that was pretty stupid. He just said it and then thought about it afterwards. At times he was brash, kind of quick to fight. See, Jesus chooses to be a disciple when there's this pool of thousands of really educated, wise scholars of the faith. What's he doing choosing fishermen? Telling you the principle that we see from him being born in Bethlehem, following him through his life. Jesus was not real interested in the fame and the power and the prestige and all the things that glittered and everybody in this world thought was great. He was concerned and interested in the small things. Number two this morning, you know what that means? You, you are significant to God. I really pray that tonight, this morning for some people that might sink into your heart in a new way. You say, maybe you have your whole life. Why would God care about me? I'm nothing. Well, I pray somehow the Holy Spirit will bring to life what I just spent the last 20 minutes trying to teach you. The very willingness to recognize it about yourself is what opens you up to God moving in your life. You are significant to God. You feel small? Good. Good. Because small places is where God chooses to be born. You know, one of the things I've noted over the years, I've noted over the years that often people who truly get saved, who truly have radical transformation, often, not always, but often, they are people who are at their lowest point. It doesn't have to be that way. There's no law that says that. But often that's the case. You know, I, I believe the reason for that is that it's not until we truly come to the end of ourselves that we're willing to see ourselves as nothing but a stinking manger. Nothing but a small, tiny Bethlehem. This morning, what about you? When you look at your life, when you look at your relationship with God, have you truly, truly surrendered to Him?
One of the things when I look at my life that I'm embarrassed about is the five years that I spent living like an awful, wicked person. It's an embarrassing part of my life. I don't like talking about it. I was a horrible, terrible person. But when I look back at it, one thing that I appreciate, I guess, if there is something to appreciate, is that by the time I was 20 years old, I was done with life. I don't mean to be too heavy, kind of odd on a Christmas morning, but I just feel compelled to go with where I'm going here. I'll never forget what happened to me the first time I stuck a needle in my arm and injected meth into my veins. I'd been a druggie for years. I'd been drug dealing for years. I'd been raised in a home where a lot of... uh, There just wasn't a lot of restraint. But it wasn't until then, when I started using needles, it wasn't until then that Joplin Emerson said of Joplin Emerson, you're a loser. I didn't believe it until then. But it was then that I looked at myself and I thought, and I'd see myself in the mirror as you are an absolute, horrible, worthless piece of junk. The world is better off without people like you in it. That's what I believe about myself. And all I can tell you is that in some way God used me getting to that place in my life where I didn't have any argument anymore about being a great, smart, young this or that. I was nothing. And I saw myself as nothing. I'll never forget when I, God revealed himself to me that morning in a church service very similar to this. And it was like, God, it was, I can't explain it. You've got to experience it. It's difficult to explain. But God made himself real to me. And I knew that God was real. And I knew that I was a sinner. And that morning when I prayed... All I could say over and over again was, God, I'm so sorry. And I look at my account and I look at the accounts of so many others. It's like we have to get to the, just the, the bottom of the barrel before we're really willing to give up our stinking pride and realize we have nothing to offer to God. You know, there are people right now under the sound of my voice, you've been waiting to truly surrender to God because you're trying to get your life cleaned up so that God would be proud of you. It's nonsense. You think, I need to do this, and I need to do this, and I need to change this so that I have something good to offer to God. God is not looking for that. God is looking for little Bethlehem. God is looking for the manger. God is looking for the low man or the low woman who's willing to acknowledge, God, I really have nothing special. There's nothing about me that's significant other than the fact you love me. And I don't offer some grandiose wisdom and power and influence to bring to your kingdom, God. I have nothing to offer of that. 
But what I am willing to offer is this heart of mine, the place for you to come and live. You are significant to God this morning. You matter to him. I'm going to close with this third point this morning. What matters to God should matter to us. And and I want to say the reverse of that also. What does not matter to God, it shouldn't matter to us. If God is unimpressed by the big things, we should be too. If God's not moved by people of power and influence, then we shouldn't be moved by that either. Guys, sometimes we worship people. It even happens in the Christian kingdom. I want to make sure I clarify that, as I already did, that I'm not against megachurches. I'm also not against people that are famous. You know, we live in a, a weird time where because of the internet, because things can go viral, because of the ability to purchase books and music online, It used to be 30, 40 years ago that wasn't an option, and it took a real long time for people to know who you are. It's possible, literally possible, to become famous overnight in this weird era of time. So I'm not saying that somebody that is well-known is somehow wrong, but I will say this. we got to guard our hearts against worshiping those people and those people that find themselves in those places where all of a sudden they're pushed on a, you know, a national stage or a world stage in the Christian kingdom, they've got to guard their hearts against thinking that there's something special. So what matters to God should matter to us. I want to encourage you this Christmas and this week leading up to Christmas, take some time to be thankful for the small things. The families that we have, your friends, our Christian brothers and sisters, a God who simply longs to be with us every day. What could be better than that? Families to laugh with, food to eat, shelter, a God who loves us, salvation that is simple. The conclusion is this, we need to be humble. It has always been the humble man or the humble woman that God is after. Right? It was John that said, John the Baptist, I must decrease, he must increase. It's the humble man or the humble woman that God pours out his spirit upon. We need a real Christmas a birthplace. If you can realize that you're just nothing more than a stable. It wasn't just Bethlehem. Bethlehem was small enough. Too little to even be named. But when Jesus got there, it was a manger in Bethlehem that he would be born in. God didn't go to Jerusalem, to Rome, or Athens. He came to a stable. Oh, that's so important. 
I just pray somehow the Holy Spirit will bring that to life in somebody's heart this morning. So important. He came to a stable. He will come to you. The devil wants you to think God's not interested in you because you're unimportant. Nothing can be further from the truth. You are important to God. And everything changes when you realize that you are nothing but a stable. But He's willing to be born in the stable of your heart. You might be unimportant to the world, but you are of immeasurable importance to God. Everything changes when you welcome Him in. Everything. Everything changes. While all of the great big places and the great big voices and the great big people of power and the great big influences of the world are rejecting Him, are you willing to open your heart to Jesus this morning?